Hey everyone, this episode is a teaching I did on 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1-8, through 8, where I look at the context of what Paul is writing here, and through that, try to understand how we can have prayers or a prayer life that is pleasing to God. I did this teaching at Gospel-Centered Recovery here in Des Moines, Iowa, at Sailorville Church. Uh, Gospel-Centered Recovery is a ministry that helps men and women see victory over addictions through the transforming power of Jesus Christ. You can check the show notes for a link both to their website or if you would like to watch the video recording of this teaching. As always, I want to give a thank you to the listeners over on patreon.com slash onwardinthefaith who support this ministry every month. If you'd like to join them in supporting Onward in the Faith, you can also find that link in the show notes. Now, on to the main event. So what I want to do is I just want to jump into our text for tonight, and then I'll let you guess if you can uh, see what we're, we're going to be discussing tonight. So we're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 2, and that's going to be verses 1 through 8. I will have it up on the screen um, if you um, don't have a Bible with you. Uh, so verse 1 of 1 Timothy chapter 2. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Now, if you're like me, you're sweating a little bit because you heard that word pray come up a couple times there. And as Christians, the, the one thing we share in common is that all of us have prayed at least once in our life. We have prayed to Jesus Christ to save us. We have prayed to God the Father for forgiveness, uh, to give us repentance, and to ultimately save us from what we deserve um, for our sin. But as we go on, um, prayer becomes one of those things, either you are amazing at it or you have no idea what to do, and maybe at best you're praying at mealtimes, usually. So, and I'm going to be honest, that's, I'm, I'm right there with you. I, any other spiritual discipline, I'm, you know, God is, has given me strength in, but prayer is still one of those things that I, I don't always have the best track, track record with. And so uh, preparing for this was very convicting on my part, as always, as I think any teaching is from God's Word. Uh, but what I want to do tonight, though, is not necessarily teach you how to pray or even what to pray about. Instead, I want us to look at the quality of a Christian's prayer or their prayer life. Um, so as I was preparing this, I was getting a lot. I had a, I had a whole flow chart and stuff. I had just a lot. I mean, the presentation looked good, but there was a lot of felt like random points that I was drawing out of this. And I'm like, it's only eight verses. This, there should be a central theme here. And I think one of the central things that we can focus on and what I want to focus on tonight is found in verses three and four, where Paul says that this is good and pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. So Paul is telling us that, that when God sees something, when God encounters something with us and in our lives, it pleases him. Now, as his people, we want to please him in all ways. And in this particular thing, what, what Paul is telling us is that there is a 
a way to approach prayer or qualities to have in your prayer life that pleases your God. And so as his people tonight, I want us really to see, again, not just how should we pray, what should it sound like, what should be on our checklist, but instead to give us a foundation so that when we go to pray over the next few days, over the next few weeks, to give you something to consider and maybe even understand about what God desires in your prayer and what God does through your prayers. So the first thing that I want us to notice is that God is pleased when we pray as a Christian. So last week, if you were here, uh, there was, um, it was basically about kind of the false teachers that Timothy was dealing with in the church and, you know, things to watch out for. And so when Paul starts in this section, he has this kind of transition statement where he says, now having talked about false teachers, false Christians, people who do not truly love Jesus Christ, here's the first thing I want to tell you, and that is to pray. So as followers of Christ, we want to understand that prayer is something that we have access to, that is a blessing. There are you know, people in the world who enjoy a lot of God's blessings, right? Even false teachers can enjoy God's blessings. They enjoy the sunshine when we need it, the rain when we need it, good food, family that we love. There are certain blessings that everyone gets to enjoy, but prayer is one of those things that only Christians have through Jesus Christ. Now we see this if we jump ahead a few verses in verses 5 and 6 where Paul talks about there is one mediator between God and men. Now a mediator is just kind of a nerdy word that means a go-between, right? So before you were saved, there was you and there was God, and there was a huge chasm between the two of you because of your sin, the choices you made in breaking his law. Now, Jesus Christ, essentially through his death, burial, and resurrection, and paying the price for your sins, he paved over that chasm. Now, we have access to God the Father through prayer. That is something that no other person in the world has access to. Now, obviously, we, we prayed when we were still sinners, right? We had to pray to become Christians. But this, this connection we have to God, the thing that we're going to talk about tonight it's not going to make sense unless your sins have been paid for, unless that chasm has been bridged by Jesus Christ. So that's the first thing to understand about prayer, though, is that it's a gift of, from, from Jesus Christ. We don't just have our sins paid for. We get to go to our Heavenly Father. Now, the next thing that uh, pleases God is having regular prayer. Uh, so I'm getting this, uh, continuing on in verse 1. He says that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings. Now, I'm a bit of an English nerd, so when I see an S at the end of a word, all of you know it with me, right? It's a plural. It means more than one. And so Paul here is already just assuming that when he's talking to Timothy and, and by um, us kind of listening into their conversation, you know, we're understanding too that there is an assumption that we pray regularly, that we are making not just a supplication to God, not just a prayer here and there, not just an intercession once or twice or a thanksgiving at mealtime, but that this is a normal thing for us, that it is made frequently. Um, if you remember in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, really long verse, it says, pray without ceasing. That, that's what we're talking about here, is to have a constant on switch of your prayer life where you're just in regular communication with your God. And that pleases him. That's one thing we want to realize. God isn't bothered by our petty little things. He's not annoyed with us. There's not, you know, the hardest thing for me is there's nothing too little to bring before the almighty God of the universe. He cares. He may not be a genie in a bottle giving us what we ask for, but he still cares about the things that hurt us, that scare us, that excite us. We get to take those things to God. 
Now, I don't want to get too hung up in what these words mean, because again, this isn't about making a checklist or telling you what you should or shouldn't add in your prayers. But Paul says four different things should be part of our prayer life. And so I just want to briefly go through the definitions. But again, it's not exhaustive. It's not something that you need to fear if you don't have enough of this in your prayer. Uh, but the first one is supplications. Now, we could also think of this as requests. Um, the, the picture here is if you think of a peasant going before a king and asking him for mercy, asking him to um, you know, help them with their, their failing farm or something like that. You, know, you don't go to a king all casual-like. You don't just go say, hey, would you mind if you did this and help me out here? There's a reverence, there's an honor, and even an adoration for this person that you're going to. Um, and so, but a supplication then is us telling God our specific needs, again, treating him as the God that he is, not just our best buddy, not just, you know, this distant figure, but God the Father. Next is intercessions, and this is when we pray on behalf of others. So when we pray for someone's healing, for their salvation, for their protection, we're interceding on their behalf before our God. Next is thanksgivings. Uh, this one's easy. Uh, this is when we recognize God, recognize God's grace and his mercy. So we recognize that God gives us so much that we don't deserve, right? Every breath we take, every good thing in our life, our family, our friends, our health, those are all good gifts from God that we did nothing to earn and can do nothing to keep without um, his love for us. And then, you know, recognizing his mercy that he doesn't give us what we do deserve. Because at the moment we sin, we deserve to be wiped from existence. The fact that all of you are here is proof that God is merciful because unless there's someone here who's perfect, you've sinned and have not gotten what you deserve. And then the last one is prayers. And this is kind of weird when you read how people try to understand this verse because why is Paul saying, hey, when you pray, make sure you pray? So the best thing that I've been able to come up with in understanding different perspectives is that these are just kind of our focused conversations with God, not necessarily the things where we are going in need or going in repentance, but just kind of the casual conversations we have where we share things with him and things like that. Again, not exhaustive, but um, there's a, a variety, right? There's a, a breadth of things that we can take before our God. There's not just one memorized prayer. There's not just praying when things are really bad. We're thankful, we ask him for things, we pray for others, and we just basically keep that line open to our God. Now, the next one is when we pray for all kinds of people. So continuing on at the end of verse one and then going into verse two, it says that um, all these kinds of prayers be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high authority, or in high positions. Now, a better way to uh, translate this, because a lot of times when we think, oh, I should pray for all people, you know, God, please save everyone in the world, amen. And we think it's that easy, but really what Paul is getting at here and what the language here is getting at is pray for different kinds or different groups of people. So if you think about the people that are in your life right now, you've got, at a low level, you have your immediate family, your extended family, friends, neighbors, uh, people at church, the leaders of your church, people in local government, people in bigger government, sports teams, people in other countries, right? We've got a lot of groups of people that we can pray for. And so what Paul is saying here is don't just focus on one, but pray for everyone. Have, have people that you care about in, in kind of clusters almost. So pray for your friends and pray specifically for them. Pray for your family and pray specifically for them. But then he says something really weird because he says all people, right? That, that's a pretty big smattering. But then out of everyone he could have chosen, he chooses kings and people in high positions. In other words, government authorities, people in the upper levels of government. Uh, we could maybe even make an argument for your boss. Uh, people don't want to make that argument, but 
But let's, let's push ourselves and even consider if, if you have a, a boss over you, um, considering them to be in a high position. Now, why on earth is Paul specifically calling this group out out of everyone else when he's encouraging us to pray? I think it's because they are the least likely people that we want to pray for. Now, Paul, in the, in the area uh, when he was writing, was under the Roman government. Now, there's different er or, uh, eras of Rome to understand, but this was not a good time to be in Rome as a Christian. Um, the, the government itself, just on a broad level, was very wicked and very corrupt. And when Paul wrote this, there were basically rumblings of persecution. So the government itself had made a blanket statement, arrest or kill all Christians. But if at a local level in your town, if you were persecuting Christians, if you were throwing them in jail, taking away their property, even killing them, Rome had better things to deal with at that time, right? So when Paul was writing at this time, he was writing under the, the rulership of a very corrupt government, one that over the next few years would see the Emperor Nero really start to rise to power and treat Christians as torches in his front yard. That is how wicked this guy was. That is the, the depth of, of wickedness in this government and how much they were starting to hate Christians. And under this, Paul is saying, hey, even though you know, your life is in danger, even though you may go to prison an hour after hearing this, pray these things for the emperor. Pray these things for your local leaders. Maybe pray these things for your boss. Now, this isn't the main point of this, but I'm not going to ignore where we are in American history and how politicized things are and how divided the country is and how as Christians, we're trying to understand where do we fit in all of this. You know, if you're a Christian and a Republican, how do those two coexist? If you're you know, a Christian and, and a libertarian, you know, whatever position you take or position you don't take, how do you make those things live in harmony? You know, what should you fight for? What should you not join the world in, right? Not be conformed by the world in. So I just wanna, I wanna make this brief, but I think it's an important thing to understand when Paul is calling for Christians under an evil government to pray, whether it's in Rome then, or even in America today, there's a, a reality that's really uncomfortable but is important for us if we want to be honoring to God, if we want to be pleasing to God in our prayer life. So the first thing to understand is that we are called to honor and obey government authorities. Again, go ahead and slide your boss in here um, if you need it. Uh, so it says in Romans, so Romans uh, 13, one through eight, that's the bigger passage that I'm not gonna get into. Also for you note takers in 1 Peter 2, 13 to 17, you can also see this discussed. Uh, but he says that to let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. So the president that we had four years ago was appointed by God. The president we have today was appointed by God. There's no difference between them. Um, and it says, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. So... As a Christian, think about the things that you've seen online. Think about the things you've shared online. Where are you falling on this? Are you resisting, being dishonoring, being hateful to your boss, your, uh, you know, some, you know, a senator, uh, the president? Because um, if you are, you are, you are hating what God has instituted. You are saying that God didn't do the right thing and that you are mad about it. Um, and another thing is we pray for them, we love them, we honor them, even when they act as our enemies. 
So Jesus Christ said in Matthew 5, 44 to 46, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Oh, those wicked tax collectors. So do we pray for those who persecute us? Do we pray for those who hate us? Do we pray for those who hate God? Especially people in high positions, whether again, just someone that you have to report to at work or someone who can change the entire law of the country. Do you pray for them? Do you love them as Christ calls us to? Now that's hard, but that's where again, Romans 12 too, I swear I say it every single time I get up here because it is the perfect verse for understanding life as a Christian. Are you being conformed by the world and just you know, talking like every other Republican or every other libertarian talks? Or are you being transformed? Are you so different that even though you agree with the same policies of a political group or you, you know, work with, uh, you know, side by side with your fellow employees, you do not take part in the same wicked sinfulness that they do where they are dishonoring and defying what God has instituted over you. So again, if Paul could say this under Nero, then we can say this where we are. So, um, Last thing to say about this is just a really good example. So again, four years ago, we had Donald Trump as president, and there were people who claimed to be Christians who said horrible, hateful, wicked things about him, right? Today, president, or our president is Joe Biden, and people who call themselves Christians say horrible, wicked things about him, and you all have seen it as well. And one thing I can guarantee you is when someone says that stuff online, when they say it in person, when they say it on the news, I guarantee you they were not praying for President Trump then, and they are not praying for President Biden today. You can tell if someone is praying for someone by how they talk about them and by how they treat them. And that's gonna lead me to my next point, is that prayer that pleases God is prayer that changes us. So look at what Paul says immediately after calling for us to pray and love wicked government authorities. He says, do this so that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So for all the things Paul could have called for, he could have radicalized the churches, he could have called for people just to you know, move out and go you know, live somewhere else. He could have called for anything, but instead he said, hey, pray so that you can live a peaceful and quiet life that is godly and dignified. And now we can do this, like I said, anywhere. We can do it um, you know, in our marriage. You know, if, if you're a, a wife um, you know, praying for your husband, we can do it at work, we can do it at our church, we can do it just with our government. We can live a peaceful and quiet life that is godly through the power of prayer. Now, one thing to clarify here is a lot of people do read this and they think, oh, well, if I pray, then they'll let me lead a peaceful and quiet life. They'll leave me alone. They'll just let me be because I prayed hard enough. That's not what God's word ever promises us. I mean, if you just look at the life of the apostles, not a single one of them, no matter how much they were praying, got to have a peaceful and quiet life with the government. They all died. They didn't just die of old age. They didn't just die rotting in prison. They were put to death by these government authorities that they were telling people to honor, telling people to respect and pray for and love no matter what they did for us or, or did to them. So this is not about pray so that people will let you live a certain life, but pray so that your life will look like this. No matter how much they hate you, no matter how much they persecute you, even if they put you to death, prayer will allow you to be someone who is seen as peaceful and quiet. They will see God through you, no matter what they say about you, no matter what they accuse you of, they will be able to see that in your life. Now, Jesus Christ also talks about this, where the, the reality is that 
you know, everyone hates Christ, right? If you are not a Christian, in one way or another, you basically hate Christ because he represents the reality of you are a sinner and, and deserving of condemnation. And so Jesus Christ promises us that everyone's going to hate us too because we're a part of him. So in John uh, 15, 18 to 25 is the, again, the bigger context if you want to read this more. Um, but he said that if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So we should not expect to have just these peaceful, quiet, easy lives if we just be good enough Christians and pray hard enough for people. We should expect trouble. We should expect hatred and persecution and maybe even death. But despite all that, we can be different from how everyone else in the world would respond because of the, the grace that God gives us and how we think about you know, things like the government through prayer. Now, how then does that happen? I mean, I'm saying you know, pray and you're going to be nicer in the world, basically, right? Well, how, how does prayer do that? Now, just from my own experience in prayer, here are the things that prayer changes in me or forces me to acknowledge before I can really do anything. So the first thing is that when we pray, we acknowledge God's authority in the situation. So let's just take the obvious one. You know, they would have been thinking about Nero. We can think about President Joe Biden. So we reckon, when we pray for Joe Biden, we can recognize God's authority in his life and in the situation. That it's not up to us to try really hard, that God's not out of control. God knows exactly what he's doing with what he has allowed or um, made to happen. We also trust God's sovereignty. So sovereignty is this idea that basically God's in control. So not only is God in charge, but nothing stops God from accomplishing what he wants to accomplish. Now, this is true in anything in our lives. And as Christians, we would do well to really understand this, that no matter how bad something is, no matter how outside of God's control things are, God is sovereign and nothing happens unless he demands it or allows it. Uh, the next thing that prayer does is it points us to what we need most. So a lot of times when we are frustrated with our boss, frustrated with a pastor at our church or the president, a lot of times we know what we're putting our hope in. We're putting our hope and trust in things going how we think they need to go. If, the, if this would just go how I say, then everything would be better, be better. If the country would just run in the way I think, if the, if the church or if my work, if it would all just go how I think, then everything would be perfect and nobody would be unhappy. And when we don't get that, that's when we complain, that's when we bicker and criticize. But when we pray to God, we say, God, it's not my will, it's yours. It's not my plans, it's your plans. And we are recognizing where we are on the totem pole of God's plans, and it is very, very, very low. The next thing is that we are reminded where our hope lies. And this goes right along with that previous point, is that we think that, um, let me rewind. When we pray and things go how we want, we can rejoice. When we pray and things don't go how we want, right? If the president never repents and turns to Jesus Christ for salvation, then God is still in control. We can still be thankful to God because our hope is not in our vending machine coming through and working. It's not about us rubbing the magic lamp well enough to get our, our wishes answered. It's about bringing our prayers to God and trusting that he is in control and that we will trust and follow and love him no matter what happens. Now, that's pretty much true for a lot of just how we understand God, right? But this last point, I think, is where we really start changing in terms of the horizontal, right? How we think about our boss or our president. And that is that when we are praying for people, we are seeing them as God sees them. So you think about the person you like least in your life. It can be a politician. It can be 
anyone. A lot of times, the thing that we think is they just need to stop doing that behavior. They need to, to pay me the money they owe me. They need to ask for forgiveness for that thing they did years ago, whatever it is. But when we pray for people, then we realize what they need most is not better behavior. It's not falling in line with our beliefs or our political system. They need Jesus Christ more than anything else. And when we look at a person and say, they need Christ, no matter what happens, if they die without Christ, it does not matter how much good or how much evil they did in their life because they're going to stand before the judge just as all of us will without Jesus Christ. And they will have no hope for, for answering the, uh, the price of their crimes. And so when we see people differently, when we see that they are people who are sinners, who are enemies of God, who hate Jesus Christ most of all, that everything they do in their life, whether it's the good they do or the evil they do, they do it because they are serving and loving themselves in one way or another. When we see people like that, that is going to change how we treat them. Let's make it personal. Think of a family member or a close friend you have that you would love to see God save. Are you going to complain about them behind their back? Are you going to bicker at them about little things? Are you going to be anything more than a, a loving and broken, but the best representative of Jesus Christ that you can be to that person? I think you would, because your greatest desire would be for God to save them, because you know that what they need most is not to be better, act better. They need Christ most of all, and you will treat them and think about them and talk about them in a way that reflects that you really and truly believe that. So that is my argument for how prayer changes how we think about people um, in our lives. Now, last one is that God desires prayer from an obedient heart. Um, and so this is at the very end of what we're talking about here. This is the end of verse 8. He says that he desires that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Now, notice I did not bold in the lifting holy hands because we're not going to get um, into whether or not that should happen at church or not. But no, so, but really Paul here is saying when you pray, it's not just enough to pray, but pray without anger or quarreling amongst you. He's talking about our horizontal relationships here. He's saying that when people pray, I want you to pray without having issues with the people around you, without having unrepentant sin between you and someone else. If you're holding a grudge with someone, if you are bickering with someone, if you are angry with someone, that, should, that stops you from praying. And we see this all throughout God's word. God isn't just interested in us doing behaviors and doing good things. Even if you read the Old Testament, go read um, Isaiah chapter 1. God basically says, hey, you're doing all these incense offerings, you're doing all this prayer, you're doing all these sacrifices. Stop it. I am not interested in your behavior if your heart is not behind it. That is the God that we love and worship. God isn't just interested in our behavior. He's interested in our hearts. And what Paul is saying here is that you cannot really think that you can go to God in prayer if you still have a problem with somebody else. Now, that might seem problematic, right? That's not something we hear. We should always be able to go to God. We have this open line because of Jesus Christ, right? How can how I'm treating someone else interfere with my prayer life to God? Well, Jesus will tell us. So Mark 11:25, he says, "Whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father, who also is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses." So Jesus Christ is saying something very difficult here. He is saying that when you're praying and you have an issue with someone, before you're going to talk to your God and hope that He is going to forgive you of what you've done, you go and forgive someone else. 
You do not talk to God. It's not finish your prayer and then get to it when God brings them to mind. No, you literally drop it. You say, God, I'll be right back. I've got something to deal with. That is what God wants you to do. Now we see this again in Matthew 5, 23 to 24. If you're offering your gift at the altar and they remember that your brother has something against you, so it's not just how we're treating others. If we know that someone has an issue with us, leave your gift there before the altar of God and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Now, time being what it is, um, I didn't have time to get to this, but I would encourage you, if you're struggling with this idea, go read Matthew 18, 21 to 35. This is the parable of the wicked servant. And in there, I believe that parable gives us a good understanding of why our hearts interfere with our prayers to God. So in the parable of the wicked servant, um, we basically learned that when you have been forgiven of so much, so at an individual personal level there in your chair, think about how much has God forgiven you just before the day of your salvation. Ignoring everything you've done since salvation, right? Even if you were saved at the age of five, God has forgiven you of so much rebellion, so much anger, so much breaking of his law. How can we then, who saw that we could offer nothing to God, that we could do no good, how can we then say, God, I know you forgave me for all this, but I'm just going to talk to you and refuse to walk in forgiveness with somebody else? We can't. This is why our prayer life is hindered by our hearts. It's not that God is just holding the door saying, sorry, you've got to check this off your list. But instead, God is seeing our heart just as he would see Israel's heart. And he is saying, if you have the audacity to not forgive someone for some small sin they've done against you, even if they murdered your family, that is small potatoes compared to what God has forgiven us of. If you refuse to forgive them, how are you going to come talk to me and have a relationship with me where, where all your sins have been forgiven and our relationship exists because of Jesus Christ? We can't do it. So that's going to wrap that up. So um, again, I know this was kind of almost a scattershot thing, but again, this is all about how do we have a prayer or how do we have a prayer life? How do we think about prayer in a way that pleases God? First, recognize that Christ allows us to go to our Heavenly Father to have essentially the blessing of prayer, something that no one else has without Jesus Christ. Prayer is something that we do regularly. We have a regular conversation with our Heavenly Father. We pray for all kinds of people. Yes, even that person, even those people, all kinds of people. We love and forgive our enemies. Um, and when we do that, our prayer not only affects our relationship to God, but it also affects how we live with those people that we're praying for. When we're praying for their salvation, when we're praying for God's goodness in their life, we are going to be an extension of God in that person's life. We are going to show them who Jesus Christ is by our words and by our actions. And then finally, our prayer has to come from an obedient and forgiving heart. So if you're here, you know, and you feel like, oh, I just feel like I pray and God's not hearing me. There's a lot of reasons that that could feel that way or it could be that way, but one of them may be that you have not sought forgiveness for someone else or you have a family member or a friend from the past or someone today that you are refusing to forgive and seek reconciliation with. If God has forgiven you much, you must forgive them of whatever little thing they did. So that is Paul's discussion on prayer in 1 Timothy 2. Um, again, it's not about how should you pray, what kind of checklist should you have, but what can we understand about how our God views prayer so that when we go to him, we are doing it in a way where we know what's going on. It's not this weird thing. It's not this difficult thing. It's a natural thing that we get through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this episode of Onward in the Faith. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast and visit onwardinthefaith.com 
where you can read hundreds of articles about every area of the Christian life. If this ministry is a blessing to you, there are three ways that you can support it. You can pray for Ray and Amrit in the faith itself. You can share this episode with others, or you can help with various expenses by visiting patreon.com slash Onward in the Faith or following the link in the show notes. We hope this episode has encouraged you to keep moving onward in your faith towards maturity in Christ. 